Okay, well, I'll get started um, since it's a little bit after five o'clock. Um, I'm doing this class over here in my usual workplace. It hasn't been too cold, but I think the temperature is dropping very rapidly. So hopefully I'll get through the next um, hour or so. Uh, can people just indicate if they're able to um, hear me okay? Okay, that's good. Oh, good. Who's who's turned up for Tavi? So Tavi says hello. Hello, Tavi. Hello, says Tavi. Um, Hi, Tavi. Yeah, that would quiet him down for a moment, but oh no, no, he's um in four. Uh oh, why is there this strange noise in the background? Just just hang on a moment. Okay. Sorry, apologies for the background music. Yeah. Okay. Right. All good. Okay. Um, so, um, as you may have noticed, um, I put a note on the cloud saying the class next week is going to be on Thursday. So it's going to be at five o'clock on Thursday afternoon rather than Friday. Um, because I'm taking Friday off because it's the end of semester. So um, to have a brief a brief mini holiday of about 24 hours before I throw myself into marking and other stuff. Um, okay, so should start first of all, obviously by asking if people have got any queries or issues they would like to uh, raise about the unit at the moment that they would like me to respond to. Okay, well, this sounds encouraging. Um, uh, hard to believe it's week 10, but here we are. Um, uh, I'll certainly been, I'll be glad when the semester is over. Nothing gets present company, but yeah, by about this time, you do sort of feel that you're, you're just sort of running very fast to try to catch up with things. Um, What I let me think something I did in the um, classes, and I'll, I'll see if I can. Um, I'll try and experiment in showing a little video um, from YouTube. So just bear with me whilst I try this. It may not work on this platform. I'll just minimise this a bit so I can find the URL. So if I can show this, this is a video, it's from 2015, but it's by a leading figure in the Greens from one tendency at the Greens. And I think it has some interesting reflections about the relationship between um, social movements and political parties. So I'll see if I can play it. Hi. Okay. Now I'm going to see if I can share this screen. Share camera, share application screen. Chrome tab. 
My name is Jim Casey and I'm asking for your support to be the Greens candidate for Graindler. The laws our parliament make are only ever as good as the protests and community actions that push for them. I want the member for Graindler to be a link between our national parliament and our community, our unions and our social movement. I was born in Lithgow and I grew up in the Blue Mountains. I've lived in Sydney all of my adult life. Since 2001, I've had the privilege of working as a firefighter, protecting the people of this city. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else but Sydney, but we need to stop our town becoming a place where only the uber-rich can enjoy themselves. And we do that by stopping shying away from progressive tax reform and investing in social and public housing. There's no good reason why we can't make housing affordable and put an end to homelessness in Sydney. I've been an activist over 20 years because I believe that in our society, inequality shouldn't exist and needs to be challenged. I've stood up for refugee rights, for free education, for equality, against war, and as the leader of the Fire Brigade Employees Union for the past seven years, I've worked collaboratively to protect firefighters on the fire ground and in the community against both Liberal and Labor government attacks. We need government that's prepared to shut down planet destroying polluters while investing in clean energy, in jobs of dignity, carbon-free transport. I'm in the Greens because while we all want a better world, like you, I'm prepared to do something about it. I'm putting out my hand to represent the Greens because my experience of being a part of social movements and leading a progressive union give us the best chance of winning grain loans. With a strong, energetic and unashamedly left campaign, we're in with a chance. I know from my time as an elected union leader that winning elections is hard, but that it's not an end in itself. For people like us in the Greens, our real power is in the community. It's in our own two hands. But Green MPs are a part of the process, providing a voice in Parliament for the community and speaking up for what's right. Think about it. A Green victory in Graindler, following on from Jamie Parker's repeat breakthrough in Balmain, Jenny Leong's amazing win in Newtown, and Tamara Smith's fantastic and unexpected victory in Ballina. Along with Adam Bant retaining Melbourne, it'll be a watershed mark. Okay, were people able to hear that video? Yes. So, good. Well, been able to share a video on it. Sometimes it makes this application crash, um, particularly given a fairly slow internet connection we have out here. Um, the reason why I shared that is that I think it's sort of rare to see people in or parties talking about social movements and trying to articulate a view about the relationship between parties and social movements. So did anybody pick up on what he saw as being the role of members of parliament? What role did he see members of parliament achieve in terms of um, um, achieving social change? Yeah, he. Um, I don't know if he thinks it's how it is now. I think it was more his aspiration instead of what he views them currently today. But mm. he clearly states that he wants them to be the link. So he wants them to be the link between the voices of the public and then, you know, the lead the government that makes the legislation. So it's the way that the mass public can voice get their voice into it. They're the ones that's meant to carry the message into the parliament. Yes, yeah, I think that's true. And he, he, he used the phrase also think towards the end, um, voice in parliament. Um, so it's a kind of expression, I think, of um, you know, 
I view it the Greens as a movement party, as a party which reflects social movements rather than a party which is just defined by being a parliamentary party. Now, and this perhaps is, in a sense, what the Labor Party once started out being. You know, it's very much become a kind of parliamentary party. You know, it's very much become an example of what, um, you know, last week, you know, there was that reading by Terry Irving, you know, and he talked about, you know, Big Gordon Child's criticism of the Labor Party, you know, and Child said that the Labor Party was guilty of politicalism, um, you know, seeing the whole point of politics as being about, um, you know, just electing people to Parliament. But, I mean, I think it's an interesting clip because, you know, obviously he is, um, you know, Casey enunciating a fairly clear view about politics, how he, what he sees as being the road to success in politics. Um, does anybody know if he's been successful? Has he actually managed to get elected to Parliament? No idea. I was going to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, um, he's twice run for the Greens in the electorate of Grainler in Sydney, which is Anthony Albanese's seat. Um, uh, those, of course, this is probably what you would call hipster central, I suppose, um, to use an unkind phrase, perhaps. And it's interesting that he's you know, been soundly defeated by the Labor Party both times. Yeah, and that probably says something about um, Albanese's personal brand, I think. But I was also thinking that it says something that if you have a political party, inevitably, perhaps, you know, people are going to think that the way to achieve social change, take back the power. Uh, no, I haven't seen that one, Jesse. That that. That sounds to me like, um, uh, well, if Anthony Albanese is keen on the Pixies, that sort of sounds like a public enemy reference to me. So I'll have to take a look at it. Um, I definitely know. I, I think I might have seen that video. I'm not sure. I'll have a look later because it sounds like one I saw yesterday. It definitely seems like the Greens are making a lot more effort to um, demonise billionaires and stuff of late. I don't remember seeing a lot of that in my, you know, five or ten years ago, whereas I've noticed they seem to be definitely having the word, you know, billionaires control seems to be popping up a lot more lately. Yeah, I think they've sort of um, decided to jump on the um, economic populist bandwagon um, uh, that it seems to have fallen over elsewhere. Because what I thought is that even the Greens, um, the rhetoric and appeal of the Greens, it's you know, represented in images like this. I'll just see if I can show this upper image. Where are we? Okay, just got to reconnect to the Deacon VPN. Seems to have dropped out. Uh, so I won't bother trying to bring it up because the VPN isn't working very well at the moment. But the rhetoric of the Greens, I think, um, very much focuses on, you know, the slogans they've used include things like um, standing up for what matters and your vote is powerful. And they, in a sense, I think, are political party appeals. 
that the Greens mass support base, you know, is very much based, I think, on people who are looking for um, a better version of the Labor Party, basically, and that they're voting for the Greens because, you know, they see this as the way to bring about social change. Casey, I think, is enunciated by a more radical position, you know, saying perhaps that social change doesn't come through Parliament, you know, it comes through action outside on the streets and that the most perhaps members of Parliament can do is provide a kind of voice for that. But I don't think that's a very popular position with voters, even with people who might vote for the Greens. You know, and I think it's interesting that he's done so poorly espousing this view to voters in a seat that really should be a green seat, Graindler. You know, I know Albanese is popular and so on, but once you go down the road of setting up a political party, I think, you build your support base as a political party. You know, saying that a political party can just be the reflection of a social movement is, is it a simple process? Um, does that argument make any sense to people? Um, what I'm trying to get across there in terms of saying? It does make sense to me for sure. Um, when you were playing it, like, I like the sound of him, but then I'm that kind of person. So I'm a very economic populist person. So of course it appeals to me personally, but I'm not everyone. Um, I don't really know that much about the inner workings of the Greens. Do do Green members have to select the representatives for each seat or? Uh, my understanding is that yes. Um, so he did win at least Green voters selection, did he? Yes, okay. he did. Um, now, I mean, there's long going endemic conflict in the New South Wales Greens between the ascendant, as I understand it, between the ascendant left wing group sometimes called the Eastern Bloc, and they're more sort of greeny, sort of regional environmentalist types. Um, and and Casey's very much seen as being associated with that eco-socialist trend. Um, but interesting in a sense that he wasn't able to do particularly well in a state electorate where the Greens do very well at the state level, you know, and, and do have that area. And some of that is... Albanese's brand, but I think it shows the difficulties that it's a kind of appeal. I mean, what the Labor Party said, and I, I, can I bring this one up? I might be able to bring up this tweet. Just hang on a moment. Even though the network's not working, I think I can find it on my references. Yeah, I think I can find this, just hang on. Uh, so can people see this um, Twitter page here? Yeah, I can see yeah. it. So this is from 2016, and this was at the time when Casey was, might have been after he was endorsed by the Greens. There's a controversy where a speech of his came out where he said to a meeting of, you know, Green activists, well, you know, we can't be complacent. 
you know, there's a danger that if Shorten wins the election, everybody will think that's great. You know, we've gotten rid of the Liberals. Let's stop protesting and demonstrating. This is a real danger we have to confront if the Labor Party wins. And that was represented by the media, probably a bit unfairly, but understandably, in a sense of him saying, well, I'd rather have Tony Abbott in power than Bill Shorten. And the Labor Party went to town on that. And I think it's one of the reasons why he polled fairly poorly um, in both of his contests. And people from the Labor Party said, well, you know, if civil disobedience is better, why are you running for parliament? So, he's, so a bit of a, he's a bit of an accelerationist then. So. Well, that's what he was accused of being an accelerationist. I mean, I don't, I didn't actually, um, you can track down the whole clip, it's fairly easy to find on YouTube. And I, I don't really think that's what he's saying, but this was the way it was spun and this was the way it was read by the media. And my guess would be that it would be the sort of thing that would turn off sort of soft green voters. And basically, you know, obviously Albanese has got the Labor vote, but he's also got a lot of people who might vote for the Greens otherwise. So it's a difficulty, I suppose, making this argument in a political party. You know, you say, we're in politics, vote for us. And then people say, well, that's all we have to do is vote Green. And that solves the problem. Um, Like, you know, Australian trade unions thinking all we have to do is vote Labor and that solves the problem. But anyway, I should get on to looking at the readings for this week. Um, the questions for this week, um, which speak to this question of the relationship between parties and social movements. And, you know, looked at from the kind of view of a social movement activist like Casey, you know, it sort of seems to make sense that a political party might represent a social movement. But if you look at it from another angle, you know, I, you might actually see this as being a problem. You might actually see it as being undemocratic. So the first reading is by um, Robert Saunders, a British political historian, in which he says, well, it's a bad idea to have the leaders of political parties selected by the members of that party. Anybody pick up on why he thinks it's a bad idea? Yes, Nada, go ahead. Yeah, he thinks it becomes undemocratic because it becomes an internal process. Yes. Hmm. Um, And if he thinks it's undemocratic having party members voting, what do you think would be his view of a democratic process then for selecting a party leader? Well, he did say... um he didn't specifically say he wanted the general public to have direct involvement in leadership selection, but that if they were going to, that it should be something, you know, like a presidential election so that it includes all citizens instead of not just party members. But he didn't actually specifically say that's what he wanted. He just said, if you're going to head down that path, that's the way you should do it. Yeah, you you would have an American-style system of direct public involvement. So... I mean, he he thinks it's undemocratic. Um, he also, I think, thinks that it undermines the role of parliament. You know, so he is coming from you know a fairly sort of traditionalist, you know, Westminster system believer in parliamentary democracy, who would say, well, members of parliament represent the people, um, therefore they're the people. They represent all of the people. You know, they don't just represent party members. Therefore, 
they should be choosing the leader. Can you the sort party, of see what I kind of coming from? in the Conservative Party choose the um, parliamentary um, candidates, or um, I'm not sure. It's a much more centralised process in both Labor and the Conservatives. Yeah, I noticed he doesn't yeah. to have a problem with the undemocratic nature of who the selected candidates are. But That's exactly right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. Well, it's, it's expressing in a way that kind of, you know, people say, well, parliamentary democracy, the people represent members of parliament. No, the people support somebody from a party and the party has selected that person, you know, often very undemocratically. Yes. And, yeah, a lot of, and because their system is first past the post, a lot of the time, most people in that electorate don't even want that person a lot of the time because yeah. in the UK, like there's usually four centre left to left wing options and then just one right. So normally it's actually a plurality getting the person they want when if you probably had um, preferential voting, a lot of those conservatives probably wouldn't win a lot of the time, to be honest. Well, yeah. this is, yeah, that's true, yeah. It seems like everybody's just arguing like, oh, my way of, you know, representative, you know, politics is, is correct. And it's like, uh. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's a good author and he's written some interesting stuff. Um, but it's very much that kind of political class orthodoxy view about, well, you know, this is how we do things in Britain. We have parliamentary democracy, which is wonderful. Um, so. You've got this idea then of parliamentary democracy in Britain. People elect members of parliament and they make, make the decisions. What was the big thing that happened a few years ago that challenged that, that caused a kind of crisis in the political system? Well, it was, I guess it was Brexit and then the mess of it where Theresa May had to step down because she couldn't get the parliament to agree with whatever she negotiated, which then led to the Conservative Party choosing new leadership and then electing a Prime Minister through an internal leadership vote. Yes, and, and actually, I mean, as I think I said a few lectures ago, um, May got to be the leader unopposed. You know, it was a backdoor deal to choose her among party elites, um, whereas, you know, Johnson actually won a ballot at party members and sort of infused them and motivated the party. and. I mean, the thing about Brexit is that Brexit was a popular referendum and a popular referendum and parliamentary democracy really struggled to go together. And what you saw was a popular vote for one thing, yet most members of parliament um, did not support Brexit. You know, would never have voted for Brexit in a pink fit, but felt they had to vote for it because of this popular vote. You know, there were some people who said ignore the referendum. You know, that the referendum was invalid, that it was all a result of Russian social media conspiracies, that money was spent illegally. But it set up a real crisis in the political system of having a referendum and a parliamentary democracy together. And the two things, I mean, the system survived, but, it's inter but it did sort of put it under a lot of pressure. But yeah, it, it's that kind of fairly traditionalist view, you know, of what political parties are about. You know, political parties aren't to be the voices of social movements or their membership. They're to be, you know, two things that voters choose. Um, 
uh, yeah. And I mean, it's odd because in Canada, in Canada, um, party members choose um, the party leader, and Canada, in all the all the major parties, I think the leader is chosen by party members, and it doesn't seem to have produced the kind of crisis in Canadian politics. But yeah. Um, okay, so the next question. Um, suddenly getting very dark here, and because Tabby's sitting on my lap, I can't actually quite reach out to turn on the light. So just let me look a bit more closely at the thing here. Okay. The second question is um, from the book by Scott Pohl and um, Williamson um, about the Tea Party in America. And according to them, what was the relationship like between the grassroots Tea Party activist groups and um, elite conservative organisations? Um, they seem to suggest that the ultra free market organisations, you know, usually funded by right wing billionaires, essentially yeah. were using the, um, the genuine grassroots activism that rose up, you know, naturally and authentically on its own due to, you know, people being unhappy about <laughs> their lives and government and thought it was a good way for them to change their model from being mostly Washington DC lobbyist based to, um, you know, getting the, I'll, I'll even quote, the loyalties, votes and checkbooks of Tea Partiers and their sympathisers and giving the impression that their policy proposals were popular. So they were kind of using them. Yes, yeah, I think there's that element, um, you know, that often sort of problematic relationship between conservative base and conservative elites. Um, you know, the, when you think of Morrison at the moment, you know, and Morrison's big spending um, budget deficit agenda, probably not popular with the conservative base, but voters seem okay with it. Um, if Morrison loses the next election, you know what, you know, the post-election Liberal Party script is going to be, well, we move to the left on economic policy and that was a mistake. If he wins, it will be, it was a brilliant idea, I, I suspect. Um, yeah, so it's definitely that process of these sort of elite groups trying to use these um, Tea Party activists. Um, how do the Tea Party activists sort of feel about um, elite conservatives? Do they sort of... They mention in there somewhere that they always had scepticism. In fact, in general, conservatives have scepticism towards um, authority, etc. So they said that they were sceptical to make sure that their organised, their local chapters weren't overtaken. Yes, I mean, really, the Tea Party. Um, you can see it now as sort of the um, the sort of training ground for Trumpism. Because the Tea Party people, you know, they had various views about policy, you know, budget deficits bad, Obama bad, etc. But the overwhelming thing that motivated a lot of them was real distrust for the Republican Party elite. You know, they felt angry at the Republican Party, they felt let down by the Republican Party, they felt it had betrayed them, you know, it had compromised with socialism. And that was sort of the big driver of their motives and way of thinking. Um, sorry, I'm just looking for something on my desk that I can't see. Um, actually, Rachel Bloom, who's, who's, who's 
sort of concept of factions I used in the lecture. Um, it's a really interesting book, which, you know, she talks about going out to interview Tea Party activists and expecting, you know, their number one priorities to be, you know, cut back government, reduce taxes and so on. Their number one priority was getting rid of the people running the Republican Party. And that's what Trump fed on. And Trump, not particularly interested in policy or conservative ideology, but very much saying, you know, I am against the leadership of the Republican Party. They have let you down. And it really worked for him. And the Tea Party built that. Um, you know, the Tea Party laid the ground for that very much so in terms of that kind of politics there. And yet um, they still have the same leader in the Senate <laughs> to this day. Well, they do, yes. Um, the Senate is different. I mean, the Senate is so oligarchical. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, this current controversy about Liz Cheney, the sort of anti-Trump Republican in the lower house, you know, she had an opportunity to move to the Senate and she passed it up. And apparently, you know, some Republican senators are saying, well, Liz, you should have come and joined us in the Senate. You know, this is where you would have found support. But in the House of Representatives, you're much more exposed to the um, grassroots, very Trumpy grassroots of the party. Um, but yeah, the power of the oligarchic group and the Republicans is interesting that they've been able to resist that so far. Um, bending with Trump a lot, um, but so far, um, you know, but Trump would want to transform the Republicans into a kind of movement party for him, basically, for the Trump movement, whatever it stands for. That would be his goal and dream, I think. Um, don't know if he can manage it, uh, but he's been reasonably successful. He's certainly come a long way there. Um, and finally, the third question, what was the third one? It's pitch dark here. Um, Yep, yeah, it's referring to the reading by Hutter or Hutter, um, you know, talking about the relationship between social movements and political parties. And, um, you know, they say that one of the things driving these, you know, social movements, these challenges to the party system are the emergence of these new cleavages in politics um, that, that challenge traditional lines of social division. And if you think back, you know, to the very first lecture, you know, I was talking about how social movements, I think, need something happening in society, provides the basis for a social movement. But whether or not this sort of potentiality is actually transformed into a social movement depends on a lot of intermediate steps. So what are some of the sort of new issues they see um, causing um, social cleavages? that are potentially giving rise to the emergence of um, social movements getting involved in politics and at these new, new cleavages and issues. Um, I haven't read it yet, so I'm just guessing. I'm guessing maybe the environment was one of them. And then... Uh, yes, the, I, think they, I think they mentioned the environment. Um, and I presume the others are things like identity stuff. So, um, yeah, identity, ID, yeah, so like... LGBT and, you know, yes, that's and the other one, I presume, and race, etc. Yes, I mean, and in a sense, the kind of responses to that as well from the other side, you know, reactions against sort of cultural liberalism 
and individual freedom and so on for more traditionally social conservative forces. I mean, I think we're a big driver of um, these movements as well. Globalisation as well, because I think some people think they win by globalisation and some people think they lose by globalisation. And even some fairly economically disadvantaged people, I think, you know, feel that they benefit by globalisation, you know, in terms of opening up and diversity and so on. Whereas there are big cohorts of voters who think they lose by processes of globalisation and this gives rise to um, to new cleavages in the party system. I mean, what's one form of globalised politics? What's one current debate in global politics and public policy? Um, that like scrambled un, issues in Australia. I think unfettered free trade is kind of a, a growing concern everywhere, kind of, but especially in America for sure. Like a lot of people say the TPP was one of the <laughs> things that helped Trump win in the first place was their hatred of the Clinton in the 90s and the TPP. So I feel like trade is definitely a big one. Yeah, you know, I think those issues around economic globalisation are playing um, a role there in destabilising the system. And in a way, climate policy is a bit like that because in the case of climate policy, you know, it, populist conservatives can say, well, you know, your jobs disappeared to China, you know, because of free trade. Now these globalised elites are trying to, you know, shut down your local industries. So the two things sort of can go together in, in, in terms of this kind of, I mean, I was reading something about America today that sort of called it neo-mercantilism. You know, it's very closely linked to the defence of producing industries against the threat of global regulation. And you can see some politicians in Australia trying to do that. It's a feature in the rhetoric of the National Party at the moment. You know, we're defending the working class, you know, that works in manufacturing and um, resource industries, you know, against globalists and the Greens. So these sort of things are leading to the emergence of new cleavages in politics that open up opportunities for social movements. Um, and because of that, you know, again, thinking back, you know, a few lectures earlier, you know, they create these kind of um, positional issues in politics. You know, people either think greenhouse is a problem or they don't. And hence, people can polarise around these kind of issues the way, you know, people don't polarise around, you know, schools or hospitals or something like that. Um, might be one reason why the Labor Party mostly does better at the state level, because there the discourse is more around schools and hospitals, you know, and things that people like, um, not about potentially divisive issues about climate policy and so on. Yeah, so... There are, I think, cleavages that are giving rise to these new forms of um, party divisions. Um, anybody got any other questions or observations about the um, discussion questions for this week at this stage? Maybe you're just all exhausted by the fact it's week 10. Yes, Nana, go ahead. Yeah, uh, what was the book again that you mentioned that you were reading? 
Um, it's yeah. called um, Rachel Bloom, B-L-U-M, How the Tea Party Captured the GOP. And she, she sort of develops this typology of factionalism, which is actually what I use in the lecture. It, it's, it's a really good way of thinking about how you might think about factions within political parties. It's, it's quite a short book. It has a really interesting introduction, actually, because she talks about how she was brought up by fundamentalist Christians and homeschooled. And then she did her undergraduate degree at a college where there were 300 people. And American higher education is just so strange. I can't imagine a university that only has 300 people. Um, you must get to know all of your fellow students much better. It must explain why Americans are so obsessed about colleges. Obviously, is that college is a much more total experience than a deacon where people turn up occasionally and then go off to work somewhere. Um, yeah. I mean, they also have, like, really cool, you know, like, all-black colleges with, like, cool professors and stuff. Yes, yeah. It's much, it's <laughs> like much something more that doesn't happen here at all. <laughs> no. Um, it's a much more diverse system. Um, uh, it's one of the benefits, I suppose, of a much looser system of regulation and structure, whereas, whereas Australian higher education is hyper-regulated and controlled. Yeah. Um, and cool meaning, cool, uh, yeah, cool meaning like former Panthers and stuff like that, where you'd be like, wow, yes. I'm like, here's a former Panther. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> Um, on the other hand, the only former panther who I think ended up in Congress, I think, was um, a Joe Biden supporter. So um, well, the social yeah. movement, Bobby Rush from Chicago. So, yeah, um, it will be interesting. Um, that much being said, it also means that American colleges seem to be a lot more subject to outside pressure and control because they're much smaller. Um, but yeah, it's an interest. I'll put a link up to the book actually because it, it's really interesting the way she talks about, you know, different sorts of factions that you can. A faction might want to play by the rules, you know, and advance its position within the party, or a faction might potentially want to blow up the party and transform it completely. And Trump is more on the blow up the party and transform it completely. Whereas the Christian right, you know, back in the seventies and eighties, they wanted to take over the party and become a major force in it, and they were pretty successful. But Trump is really just anti the Republican Party, full stop, um, anti anything he doesn't control. Okay, well, on that base, on that note then, um, since it's getting completely cold and pitch dark here, um, and Tappy has, has gone to sleep in my desk and he's keeping me a little bit warm. <laughs> uh, might close Everybody, everybody's writing their essays now, right? How, uh, how yes, well, I want to. I want to know what everybody's feeling like about the essays. I've, I've got. I've. I haven't even. This one I'm doing last because I've got three essays this week, so I'm a bit um, stressed. So I'm not even going to look at this one until I've done the other two. But yeah, it's a horrible week. I have yeah. two other essays due to, but um, they're later than this one, so I'm getting this one done first. But I'm not, I, 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 it's like I'm writing it and then I'm like, I'm not even kind of making a really great argument. <laughs> well, I'm like, what am I trying to say here anyway? Uh, yeah. Uh, Introduction, conclusion. Yeah. In this essay, I will argue this because at this, 
at the end, yeah. I have argued this and so on. Um, so I'm oh, except, except for politics, I can't say I. It's not a philosophy. Uh, I don't mind people using I, so long as it's not just a matter of um, this is my opinion, but you know, right. this is based on an argument there. Yeah. I mean, I'm just marking 60 essays in the first year unit. Um, mm. Yeah. There's a fair bit of opinionating, but actually they're not bad overall. So that's one, <laughs> one of my essay questions actually asks for your opinion. So I will be saying I in that one at least. So. Uh, yeah. Yeah, as long as it's soundly based there. Look, again, yeah, if people have got any questions about the essay, you know, shoot me an email or, yeah, put some in the cloud site or something like that. I'm sort of happy to provide advice or sort of suggest potential um, sources to people there as well. Take a look Do at the you, Yeah, go ahead, uh, Anna. Were you, in the essay, were you looking for um, theorization that comes from um, the perspective of some of the literatures or are we allowed to theorize like outside of it, like the overall you, framework? You can theorize outside it, certainly, but, you know, I am looking to see, you know, people having a theory. Engaged in it. You know, and saying, you know, this enables me to understand the world and this is useful to use in this case and mm -hmm. here I am applying it. I mean, there are a lot of different approaches That's um, right. to social movements and, yeah, I've sort of pretty much stuck to the kind of Tilly Tarot kind of approach here, yeah, but people can certainly do something else, but it has to be grounded in a particular, you know, in, in a clear approach. And if you look at the rubric, I think the rubric places less emphasis on presentation and, you know, punctual, you know, and referencing and more emphasis on the structure of the argument um, compared to. Oh no, yeah. my argument really isn't quite there in this essay for once. Okay. Um, oh no. Okay. I'll figure it out. Just fake it until you make it. I think. Yeah. Would be my advice there. <laughs> okay. Well, my, my resting argument face. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, on that basis, then I'll close up things here and just see. Oh the no! The party's ended. So where are we? Okay. There's no new cleavages. Sorry, I had to say that. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll look forward to it. And remember, next week it's on Thursday, not Friday. So, okay. see you then.